0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel. Why everything? Because I'm talking with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is a funny man who not only performs comedy, but is a stand-up comedy coach as well. He's Ross Bennett, and his unique brand is comedy for the rest of us, which means clever, clean humor that is politics-free. In other words, the freedom to genuinely laugh. For everything about Ross, go to Ross Bennett, that's two N's and two T's, rossbennett.com, and you can follow him on Facebook at Ross Bennett. And on Twitter and Instagram at Ross Comic, for his comedy coaching website, go to standupcomedycoaching.com and Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ira. So tell me, did your parents know you were funny before you did? I would say probably no. Okay. <laughs> I would say we,
1: we were all probably aware of my tendency to do funny stuff from the very
0: beginning. Fair enough. But you were conscious. I think it's my nature. Right, you were but you were conscious of that funny stuff even at an early age. It was, I think it was a way for me to stay in control. Yeah, probably. Oh, interesting. Okay, so we're just talking therapy now. (laughs) But was it because you're competing with brothers and sisters or siblings, in other words, and that's why you developed this particular reaction to the world? I, um,
1: I don't know. I just think it made a way, probably a way to make me feel comfortable.
0: Ah, okay. Yeah. What was your direction first before you decided you were going to go in the world of comedy? What were you planning to do before then?
1: Well, I had always had inclinations towards show business and, but you know, I, I come from a very traditional kind of a family. And so it was, I would say that to talk about such a thing with, with any kind of reality as something you know that might be a possibility to do would be very alien. You know, I ended up enlisting in the army out of high school Basically, just to, you know, uh, for me, it was more like, you know, joining the French War and Legion, just trying to escape. <laughs> and one thing led to another, and I ended up going to West Point. And while I was a cadet at West Point after a year and a half, I, uh, I got the bug. You know, I mean, it's like all of a sudden I had this feeling like I, can, I could do this. You know, Saturday Night Live had just gotten on TV. It was been on for years. Steve Martin was the biggest, you know, star in the country. And it's like all these people were just a few years older than I was, and they just seemed like to be having so much fun. And so it drew me into it, and so I resigned from the academy after a year and a half. And I remember writing a joke, it's not in my act anymore, because my father was a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel. And that I, for my father, uh, let's see how the joke went, it was for my father to leave West Point to become a comedian was like leaving the human race to become a cloud. <laughs> okay? I it's from... just, it, it was alien. It was an, it was an alien thought.
0: Uh, from his point and, of view, um, yes. Um,
1: and, and I think in some regards, it made it so I was able to be braver because I didn't know what the hell I was getting myself into. And in other regards, it made it so I was probably less prepared because I had no idea about that world of business and, and what it was like to function within
0: it. It's been an an interesting journey. But, Ross, when you were at West Point, was there one particular thing that triggered you into that world of comedy and, as you say, into the clouds? Was there something that, when it grabbed you, clearly West Point doesn't have a comedy club on campus. So what was it that happened there? When
1: I was there, there was a cadet acting troupe. I did a couple of plays. I actually did perform stand-up a couple of times at some various functions. So all at an amateur level and everything. No, I would say that, the, that the, the things that really guided me was, number one, Saturday Night Live and Steve Martin were like, you know, that was like 1975, 1976. It was just exploding around the country, you know. Right. It, was like a, it was like a fuse had been lit. And the other thing was probably Freddie Prinze committing suicide. And here was this guy who was the same age as I was who had become this, you know, giant star. And, and then he was dead. And my feeling was, you know, if not now, when? You know, it's like I just had a sense that this was something that had to be done then. It wasn't something I knew how to wait for.
0: Makes sense. Did you get a lot of grief from your father, particularly when you made that decision?
1: Yeah. And um, he just didn't understand it. You know, you know, I think my, my father, probably nothing better than some sort of a government job that had a pension.
0: Right, would probably be as good, would be about as great as you could do, you know? Sure. And also the the arc between the military and comedy, that that must have taken him by surprise, too. And obviously you were an adult at this point, so you just forged ahead. And as you said, you were encouraged by what you saw happening in the world of comedy.
1: He lived long enough to see me make a living doing this.
0: Excellent. Yeah, that's great. What was your first step then, once you decided you were leaving West Point Point. And you were going into that world, those clouds.
1: Well, I, I went down to Florida, and I uh, went to Florida Atlantic University. I was actually a theater major there for a year. And I, my intention was to get a, a BFA in, like, you know, in theater. But uh, I met a guy. I was doing talent shows, and I met a guy from Chicago, Ted Holum. And Ted uh, had some showcase rooms. He was a comic up in Chicago. And Ted was, the first, I was doing a talent show, and Ted was the first time I'd seen a comic, he was, like, doing a guest set at this talent show down in Fort Lauderdale. And Ted was the first guy I saw do an act where every joke worked. You know, I'd never, I'd never seen someone who actually was polished and had an act where everything worked, everything got a laugh, you know? Right. And uh, he and I went out afterwards and uh, had a discussion, and he thought that I was funny, and he goes, you know, he goes, if you move up to Chicago, he said, I have two, uh, comedy, uh, showcase rooms or workshops, little comedy clubs that, uh, that, and he goes, I can't pay you, but I can put you on stage 10 times a week. And I was 23, 22. I was 20. I was 23. And I knew that what was important was this was stage time. I knew even at that point that the key to this thing was to get experience and to get stage time. 'Cause there was no comedy clubs around the country. There was no place to make a living at this. You know, it was like sort of a, a field of dreams. Build it and he will come kind of a thing, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh and I wasn't the only one. I mean my whole generation was there was drum beats. It was such, I always considered the seventies, nineteen seventies for stand up comedy to be like the uh like the eighteen forties with gold out west. We knew <laughs> there was something going on out there. There were riches to be earned. The comedy and rush. it attracted hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of people into this world that wanted to be a part of it
0: it was uh, like the comedy rush instead of the gold rush
1: that's exactly right and so uh, i ended up going i, I, I dropped out of uh, what was then my third college florida fau in, in march of i think 78 and i was up in chicago and putting an act together and Later that summer, I ended up going to San Francisco and doing the, the third international stand-up comedy competition out of San Francisco, and I, I came in, uh, I got made to the semis and went back to Chicago, but Chicago was too small. There was a lot of, a lot of great comics, nice guys there and everything. Emo Phillips was there at the time, and, uh, and, but the truth is, a lot of guys didn't want to leave home, and I was already living out of a suitcase, Okay. So by January of '79, I had moved out to Los Angeles, you know, and I, I had a 10-minute act, 12-minute act, and I was—I moved to LA and I auditioned and passed at the Comedy Store and the Improv, and
0: my journey was uh, was off. Interesting story. And then when you were putting that first 10 minutes together, Ross, were you? crafting it little by little or did you just have a, a thought that one right after the other where you just started you know
1: to it i together? had no idea what i was doing i i look at when i look at the story of someone like a jerry seinfeld and just how single-minded and 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 focused he was and what a vision he had on what he was doing as a comic you know and, and what he was creating i had none of that i had none of it all i was doing was getting up and doing stuff that i thought was funny And, you know, in terms of crafting jokes, I was I I was blessed and cursed with the fact that I was naturally funny. So probably my jokes didn't have to be as strong because I had the ability to uh, uh, to wrestle it to the ground. I can wrestle the laugh to the ground. I can get a laugh out of almost anything at that point in my life, you know, just just out of sheer will and, and enthusiasm. And it wasn't until much later that I was really trying to craft what I call quality jokes, yeah.
0: It's a fascinating process that you went through, different from other comedians that I've talked to over the years. When you first got paid for your comedy, what was your reaction to that? Uh, Were you jubilant, or were you, you said, I've arrived now, or what was your reaction at that time?
1: It was, there is that that brief sense of, I'm on my way. You know, I think the first time I got paid was somebody up in Chicago gave me like I got like ten or fifteen dollars doing a spot someplace in the Chicago area, and um, of course when I got out to LA, the, the clubs weren't paying the Improv or the Comedy Store, but slowly but surely, you know, I I, I started out, you know, the club the clubs started opening up around the country around '79 or so, places like the the um, I think the uh, the Punchline was it the Punchline in San Francisco and zanies in chicago Mm -hmm. and the denver comedy works and i started out as a a, an an mc the laugh stop down there was four laugh stops in the in in the los angeles area and i started out as an mc and my i set my goal at being a comedy club headliner that's what i you know that's that was something that was attainable for me and within two years i was headlining at comedy clubs And uh, and now, you know, 40 years later, I wish I had set my sights higher. (laughs) But, um, you know, guys like uh, Seinfeld and Bill Maher, I know that they looked at the comedy clubs as not a goal, but as some as a stepping stone to get out of as quickly as possible. And and they just had a greater vision of of the industry. I, I, I admire them all so much.
0: When you got your first check, so not so much cash, where you got paid in cash, but the first check you received for performing comedy, did you, as many do, frame it hanging on the wall or still have it in your files? Oh, God, no. I, you know, I cast it and... and, and <laughs> well, uh, yes. you, Yes, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I should have said, made a Xerox, which really dates me, or made a copy, photocopy of the check and frame that or put it in your files. So I guess that's what I should so have said. No,
1: no, I okay. never heard of it.
0: Okay. How did you decide your approach? And what I mean by that is it's comedy for the rest of us is your brand. And I've watched many of your performances and it doesn't require cussing or four letter words or any particular thing like that. And yet you are genuinely funny, obviously that's why I wanted to talk with you about that. You
1: know, I'm not a prude. I mean, I, I have no problem with profanity. I have no problem with subject matter. It's, it's the, the truth is, and I tell my students this, you know, if you're a star, Okay. if you're a star, if you're Lewis Black, if you're Bill Burr, if you're if you have an audience that knows what you do and wants to come and see you, you can say whatever you want, because that's what they're there for. But uh, for whatever reasons, you know, in God's world is that I, I wasn't I wasn't given that gift. But there's plenty of work for someone who's not necessarily a star. I mean, when I say a star, somebody who can put put people into the seats who will you if you can if you can make people buy tickets and i mean i i, I just had a guy at my house who was pay, tuning the piano and he goes i saw you i got tickets i thought it was great you know and he goes that was like three or four years ago we took a picture thought, and that's great but i'm talking about someone who can sell 500 a thousand fifteen hundred twenty five hundred seats and they're there to see you do what it is you do they're not there to judge you they're there because they love what you do a guy like me, there may be people in an, in an environment who've heard me. They may have heard my stuff on SiriusXM or seen my Dry bar or my Letterman or whatever it happens to be. But there's a lot of people there who aren't aware of me, okay? So I'm not just entertaining, unfortunately, my own audience. I'm entertaining a wide swath of the American population, okay? And uh, middle America. That's why I say comedy for the rest of us. Because there's a lot of people out there who, frankly there i I was doing cruise ships for a while and i took great pride in the fact that i could go up and stand stand in front of people and there was a person in front of me there was a woman in front of me who was probably in her 40s and to her left was a daughter in her teens and to her right was her mother who was in her 70s and all of them were able to laugh all of them were able to have a good time and at no point did the grandmother and the mother look at each other with a look of, Oh my gosh, how are we going to have this conversation later? Okay. And that approach for me made it so I've been able to make a living. I have a lot of students who they're compelled. They think it's about, they think it's about the language. And the truth is all the comics who, who, who use, you know, adult language for lack of a better word, when you when you write their stuff down, for the most part, the language is not what generates the laugh. The language might might accentuate the laugh, but underneath it is all quality material, good, strong jokes. And so, I've just had to work over the years of just really trying to to have a, an act that is good, strong material that I enjoy doing, that people enjoy watching, and I can make a living from.
0: That's an important aspect you mentioned that you also have to enjoy doing it. So it's not as if you're doing material for the audience alone and you end up resenting it because you know it works for the audience that you want to reach, but that doesn't reflect you, but clearly you enjoy it as well. And it's important psychologically, I think, and emotionally for you to enjoy it as well as the audience. I tell my students, if you're going to write something, work on quality material that
1: you would enjoy doing. Because if you've got a good joke, you know, you, you might be doing that for 10, 15, 20 years. You know, it might, might be something that becomes really important to you in your, in your life. So you might as well have it be something you enjoy doing. Okay? And I, I, I'm always encouraging them to do that. And that's, there was a point in my life when all of a sudden everything in my act was something I enjoyed doing. There was no filler. Right. That was probably one of the great moments, one of the most satisfying moments, was the moment where there was no filler. You know what I'm saying? And uh, yeah, I enjoy
0: doing my act. Which is great because I've talked to comedians, some who just do it because it's the way they're living and some do it because they that's the audience they figure that they are reaching but they don't necessarily enjoy it. It's clear when I've seen you perform that you're enjoying it, which is which is great. And I want to talk also in a moment about your comedy coaching more and get into that a little bit more because I think people need to know about that and be able to reach you about it. but. Just one more thing about your approach to comedy. No matter where you are, whether you're in the Midwest or the South or wherever you go to perform, you're taking that material with you. Do you notice any minor adjustments that you have to make given the nature of an audience in a particular geographic area?
1: I always use, and I tell this to my students, the the metaphor of surfing. If you look at this like surfing, okay, when a surfer is out on the water, they're doing a, a thousand little movements with their body on, on the board, little steps, little you know changes in their in their weight shift and all that kind of stuff that they're not even conscious of. But they're adjusting to the waves, they're adjusting to the water, okay. And that's what we do as comics, okay. There's all sorts of adjustments you're making that you're not even aware of, you know. But you're, you know, <laughs> a stand up act. It's a high wire act. You think about the Willendez or or you know a high wire walker you know on some level that at any moment this could go horribly wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Okay?
1: All right. And yet it's not. And and it's it's awe-inspiring and it's exciting, you know, okay? And that's the same thing with stand-up. You know on some level when you see a comic that this could go south many different ways. Okay, this could be a horrible experience, okay? (laughs) Right. And... The fact that it's not doing that, it makes it very, very exciting. But the fact that you, you know that that could happen, because we've all seen a bad comic, or see so you've seen a comic have a bad set, you know, if, we, we all know what it's like when someone doesn't do well. And
0: um, so, did I answer your question? You did. It, it makes a lot of sense. Do you ever get people approaching you after your act, whether it's on a cruise ship or in a comedy club or in some other kind of venue, performing venue, and they come up to you and they, is it a standard feedback that you get, which is something along the lines of, we really enjoyed you, or do you occasionally get that cranky person that says, well, I got some of it, but not all of it. Do you ever get that kind of a person?
1: I did. um, I'm not Jewish, okay? First off, I'm not Jewish. But a lot of people think I am, okay? And uh, spent a lot of years in New York City with the Friars Club. And... Uh, worked a lot of uh, uh, Jewish events out uh, all over, all over you know, temple fundraisers and and Jewish community centers and you know events out in the Catskills, a lot of private parties and uh, and a lot of events at the Friars Club. And I would say another one of my my great prideful things in my life is being able to go up to the Friar at the Friars Club and kill because these are people who've seen everything. You know, I was able to entertain people who had seen. Every great comic, probably for the past fifty years, okay. And I was able to entertain them with what I did, and I had, and I, I played it really, really well. And it was smart, and I was very, I, I was proud of the material I did. So I'm doing. I got a a gig for a Jewish community center down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I go down there. I do my act. I have a great show. You know, I'm doing my job. Everybody's happy. And, of course, after I'm done, I go out to the lobby. And, of course, everybody's still in the room. And out in the lobby, they have all of the desserts, ice cream and cake and everything set up, because almost every Jewish show I've ever done, they have desserts after the show. And that ensures that everybody will stay for the show. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm out in the lobby, and there's a guy, an old Jewish guy, and he and he kind of saddles. It's just me and him there, It's just me and him. And he kind of saddles over, and he goes, and he's funny, he said, you know, you know, uh, some of the people I was with thought you were funny. <laughs> I said, what? He, goes, he goes, some of the people I was with, they thought you were funny. And I said, I, and, so, and, I just, I'm, and I'm sort of like immune to most of this stuff these days. I thought it was very funny. So I said to him, it sounds to me like I was not your cup of tea. And he said, Exactly. That's it. You <laughs> were not my cup of tea. Some of the people I was with thought you were funny, but you were not my <laughs> cup of tea. Um, and in some regards, that's another moment that was kind of a fun moment. I know that Joan Rivers had said once that if you're, if, you, if everybody likes you, you're doing something wrong.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: And And I do try and I want people to like me. I, you know, I, I want to have people want to hire me back. I want them to want me. But obviously, not everybody likes what I do. Yes, you're not. The, fir- the very first cruise ship I did, two, uh, uh, I did it, and I did a show. And afterwards, the, the cruise director says, you're very funny. You're actually a little too good for the ships. <laughs> and i ended up i mean of course in the next 15 years i probably did about 150 weeks of work on the ship but um and it always reminded me you know it is that i'm not as mainstream as if i could have figured out a way to be more mainstream i probably
0: would have been more successful in my career but i, I still have sort of a niche feel to what i do Absolutely you do. Tell us how you started. We have a few minutes left. Tell us how you started this comedy coaching and how people get, well, we know how people get hold of you. They go to standupcomedycoaching.com. Well, there's a
1: guy in New York City who has uh, the Manhattan
0: Comedy School,
1: Andy Engel. And uh, you can always go to his uh, website, Manhattan, do Manhattan Comedy School. And he had someone who was teaching uh, who had to uh, give up their class, and he wanted a, a class for comedy writing, okay? And so this was about four and a half years ago. I took over the, his class for comedy, for comedy writing. Okay. And over the course of the next few years, it really, I, I had to develop my own thing, my own technique, if you will. I had to do more than just be a comic who was someone tell a joke and I tell them my opinion of the joke, and then the next person would go I had, That didn't work for me. And so I put together some lectures based on my career and, and my belief system in terms of comedy and performing. And I added a performance aspect to the class, which, so the actual title of my class is, it's Comedy Writing Bootcamp, Creating Material Through Writing and Performance. Because the thing that makes stand-up different is that the writing is just the beginning. The writing gives us the raw material. You get it so it's workable. You get it, as I say, you get it so you can, it's like, you know, creating a an airplane that is functional enough that you can take it up and fly with it. It's not perfected yet, but you aren't going to just crash when this thing takes off. There's a lot of, what would you call, there's a lot of tinkering. There's a a lot of, you know, take this word out, this emphasis there, you know, switch this around. You know, there's a lot of work going on with it, even though the joke is there at the very beginning. And so it's writing and performance. So with my students, they write the material, but then they have them perform it. And then we make adjustments to it and have them perform it again and again. And so I believe it's a unique take on the uh on teaching stand up and specifically on teaching how
0: to develop material. And due to COVID, how have you been able to do that through Zoom or Skype? Well, COVID took me to another level because I was never going to
1: do it online. Who would ever teach online? I'm a live performer. I can't I can't go online. And of course when COVID happened, the classes were gone, and, and Andy said, you, want, you know, we need to take this online. And I went, okay, of course. no problem." <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but what I found was, I found that I developed a specific tone and a specific technique on my Zoom class. And I developed a way to work with people's material in a way with them in a live performance in front of the other students. And... It's very effective. Other people, just watching other people's material grow in front of you is very effective. And so through the course of that, I had been coaching for a number of years anyway. My coaching business really, you know, started to expand and take off. And I'm working with some people, some good people, and I got some pros I'm working with, and some people are just starting out, and some what might be considered some good high-level amateurs who are trying to break onto the next level.
0: Yeah. And the positive part about this now is that you don't have to drive anywhere. You can do it from the comfort of your home office. Yes. He wants
1: to, you know, they're,
0: they're starting to do classes live again, and I'm, I'm juggling around the idea
1: if I want to do that or if I just want to stick to my online, because I really like the focus I can get to the material by doing it online.
0: And I can see how, even though eventually you would like to see a live performance from somebody on stage. But yet, to build up to that point, you could do a lot of that, as you call it, adding and changing words, et cetera, on Zoom. So I taught a second
1: class over the summer, and I've done it three times now on how to perform on Zoom, particularly because I saw a lot of comics doing these Zoom performance shows, and I thought they were these great comics were very, 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 very weak because they weren't taking it seriously and they weren't they weren't using the uh, uh, the medium to its greatest effect. And so I've worked with a lot in that regards also. So the, the live part is I had to tell them at the very beginning that I had to assume that this is the way it was always going to be. I can't be treating this as second rate and someday it'll be back to the way it was. even if COVID is all gone, it's never going to be the same. It's, it's now become like a hybrid. Mm-hmm. And, With that in mind, I I really worked on developing specific techniques and specific skills that you do online and also in terms of coaching online. My one-on-one coaching, if you go to that website, standupcomedycoaching.com, that explains it all. The environment that I work with on a one-on-one with people is called the forge, and I have a specific technique that I use with them, and it's been very effective.
0: You made lemonade out of lemons with COVID. That's exactly it. Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Ross Bennett, a funny man who not only performs comedy, but as we mentioned, is a stand-up comedy coach as well. His unique brand is comedy for the rest of us, which means clever, clean humor that is politics-free. In other words, the freedom to genuinely laugh. And for everything about Ross, go to rossbennett.com. You can follow him on Facebook at Ross Bennett and on Twitter and Instagram at Ross Comic. And for his comedy coaching website, Go to it, standupcomedycoaching.com. And Ross, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Ira. Thanks for asking me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.